you know, there's just been things that have happened and I just shake my head and, you know, this is 2022. But I think if I would have stayed in the country my entire life, I would have just accepted it like my peers do. Whereas that kind of time away has allowed me to come back with fresh eyes and to just, you know, kind of grab people and shake them and say, why is this going on? This shouldn't be happening. Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, a podcast of stories, hope, insights, and ideas. I'm George Lee, my co-host is Jessica Vandenberg, and our guest is Raylene Whitford. It is always a great honour to be asked to acknowledge the land we stand on and the peoples of this land. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional territory of Treaty 6, Métis Nation, Zone Number 4 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And you may be joining from another treaty region, another Métis Nation zone, unceded land, or a different area. We stand upon a land that carries the footsteps and hearts of many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples that have been here for thousands of years and many generations. We would like to acknowledge our and their relationship with Mother Earth and the traumatic and oppressive history that they have been through. It is an interconnected relationship that we have with land spirit, but we're all relations and we all have an obligation to that relationship. This land has nourished and healed, protected and embraced us. And we're grateful to the Indigenous peoples that have been stewards of this interconnected relationship with Mother Earth and land spirit. We're all relations and as such, we all respect each other in our beliefs, but also our own individual relationships with Mother Earth and land spirit. And so from my heart and spirit to yours, I open this podcast in a good way. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 11 of Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. We've got one more to go. It'll drop in about two to three weeks by the looks of things. Then we'll kick off our third season on Orange Shirt Day slash Canada's National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, September 30th. Anyway, our guest this time is Raylene Whitford, a Métis woman with a fascinating resume that connects directly to my co-host, Jessica Vandenberg. You'll have to stick around to the end to find out how. That's called a teaser. Okay, so Raylene, who is she? Let me tell you. She's a former executive director on the London Stock Exchange, and she's worked with multinational and national oil companies to optimize their processes and reduce costs. She's the founder and a director of Canative Energy, a Canadian social enterprise committed to the economic empowerment of Indigenous communities impacted by extractive industries. In 2014, Raylene took some time off from the desk to find out what it's like to be a roughneck. She took a sabbatical from KPMG to do that and work for a winter as a roughneck on a triple pad drilling rig in Northern Canada to gain field experience. So she's not a person who shies away from new challenges, that's for sure. Raylene is currently completing a PhD in Indigenous Studies and Business at the University of Alberta, and she is a proud member of the Métis Nation of Alberta. All kinds of experience and activities round out Raylene's life, and she can bring those up as she sees fit. So here we go. Thank you for having me. I think it's pretty hard to to describe the varied career that I've had to date, but normally I'd introduce myself. I'm I'm a Métis woman. Born in Edmonton, my family's from the McRae, Lac La Biche area in kind of north central Alberta. 
and yeah, I had the, the opportunity to leave Canada at 22. I'm the first in my family to go to university and had the opportunity to, to train and, and work internationally, which has really kind of served as a formative experience for me as a person, but also a Métis person now back home in Canada. I'm joining you from Treaty 6 territory. I have a cabin at Buck Lake, which is just north of Paul First Nations Reserve. So it's the traditional ancestral territory of the Cree, Soto, Blackfoot, Denny, Nakota Sioux, and Métis people. Can we talk a little bit about your journey within your Métis people and, and culture? Was that something you were actually brought up in or something you've reconnected with or some combination of that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to, to speak about this. I've been doing a lot of reflection on this, especially since returning home to Canada two and a half years ago. So I was born very much in a kind of inner city um, household, grew up in the same house, never really moved around. My family was very, they still are very blue collar people working as pipe fitters and kind of manual laborers. And um, my family always, like we always knew that we had a Cree background and that we had Métis lineage, but it was never spoken about. And I was raised to, when I went to school and, and you know, my last name is, is quite well-known, Métis last name, I always was kind of told, you tell everybody that you're Dutch because I have a grandmother that my, my grandfather married during the war in Amsterdam. So we do have some Dutch in our, in our family, but that's how I identified for the first, you know, probably 20 years of my life. The reality is, is there's very little Dutch culture uh, or influence in our family, especially since my grandmother passed when I was eight years old. Been a kind of real journey to reconnect um, with our community and with, you know, my cousins and aunts and uncles just simply because my my father and my my aunts and uncles were kind of raised to be ashamed and kind of assimilate into white culture. So um, I don't think that that's a unique story. I think that's happened quite a bit in in Canada and especially Alberta, but that's where it all started. And I think for me, a lot of that story resonates as well for the 60 scoopers, right? That's um you know, you're raised by non-Indigenous families, uh, not traditionally, and that family may or may not surround you at, with exposure to your heritage. And they may or may, may, or may not know anything about it either. Um, so sometimes it's not that they aren't interested in um, surrounding you with your heritage. They just don't know. And I think it's very similar to a lot of um, interracial adoption stories, foster adoption stories as well. Yeah, if I can share maybe two stories that I've kind of learned over the last couple of months about my family. So the first is last week, actually, my my dad and I were having a conversation and I asked, you know, what is Grandpa Raymond's, what was his first language? I think it was Cree. And my dad was like, no, no, it, it had to be English. And I said, well, if your grandmother and your grandfather both only spoke Cree, they never spoke English. How would your father have learned English? And he said, well, at school. And I said, well, then the, his first language would have been Cree. And he kind of, he stopped and he said, wow, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's true. But my dad was never taught Cree. Like he was always kept away from that part. So it's so easy to kind of lose that culture in one generation and the language, which is really important. 
And the second story is how my mother, who is not Indigenous, and my father met. My mother was working at A&W, and my dad rolled up in a car with his friends. And um, they ended up dating and double dating, I think, for, for a couple of months. But my dad never told my mom his last name. And she comes from the kind of Vilna, St. Paul area of Alberta. And my mom told me a couple of months ago, if he would have told me his last name, you know, in the beginning few weeks of our relationship, I wouldn't have dated him because I was scared because I knew that he was, that he was Métis. And I was taught by, well, that she was taught by her parents, you know, stay away from Indigenous people. So it's still very real. And um, I wouldn't have existed if that didn't happen. But um, yeah, it's, it's a real kind of still painful, but interesting story. This is very true. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a lady as well, who was um, the settler person in the Indigenous relationship. I remember the conversation going around when they got married, whether to take the last name or not to take the last name. Um, and the Indigenous uh, spouse said, don't take the last name. And she's like, why? I want to be a family. I want to be a unit with you. And, you know, and they had a conversation around like, let's do this social experiment. Let's go to a restaurant. We'll put my name on the list and we'll put your name on the list with the last names that we have. And there was a, a difference in the treatment. There was a difference in the seating. There was a difference all over the place. And the person just hadn't really been awoken to that. The kind of the stereotyping that just goes with just naming. Nonetheless, a whole bunch of other things that surround that. to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, a podcast of ideas, solutions, and respectful conversations. I'm Jessica Vandenberg, my co-host is George Lee, and our guest is Raymond McFerty. Raylene, you've connected your career to your Indigenous roots, which is something that's happened in my career as well. I've been very intentional to try to incorporate um, the work that I do into my paid work as well. Tell us about some of the work Canadian Energy does, and it seems to be aimed at evening out the playing field for Indigenous peoples when it comes to their rights and roles in extractive industries. Yeah, so I think the best place to start is with the name. The late Métis businessman, Herb Belcourt, was a mentor of mine and incredibly formative for me as a person, as a Métis person and as a professional and so he had a housing corporation called Can Native Housing, which was then kind of taken over by the Métis Nation and, and renamed. So he allowed me to use the name for my own company. And at the time when I set it up, I was actually living in Ecuador and with no intention of returning to Canada ever again. The social enterprise that I had created was working with Indigenous people in the Amazon. I don't know if your listeners know much about Ecuador, but it is very much a petrocentric economy. So the oil drilling production exports is central to the country's finances. And unfortunately, Indigenous people have been very negatively impacted in most cases by those activities. So what I was doing was working with Indigenous businesses and people and communities to help commercialize the assets that were given to them by the National Oil Company in return for drilling on their lands. So these communities would be given 
coffee roasting machines or barges to transport garbage or they're built hostels. So I had a, a little team in Ecuador. We were running around the Amazon for three years, kind of helping the communities not set up the businesses because they already had them. They knew how to operate them, but just commercialize them and, and have them start making some money. Then I had a, a call. I, I was very happy living in the jungle in uh, Ecuador, making absolutely no money. But I had the call from somebody who I worked with in London inviting me to go run a $42 billion capital efficiency project for a company in the Middle East, national oil company in the Middle East. And this national oil company was the size of Canada's entire energy industry. So as happy as I was kind of working with cacao farmers and doing really fulfilling work, I knew that I had to take that opportunity because it's once in a lifetime. So I shipped off to the Middle East and I lived in a five-star hotel for a year and a half and had the expat lifestyle. It was an incredible experience. I learned a lot. It took me probably three months to start talking in billions instead of millions. But at the end of the day, I remember walking into the head office that was 60 stories and just thinking, what am I doing here? You know, like I'm helping, I'm, I'm living this expat lifestyle, which, you know, some people really like, I didn't, but I'm, I'm basically helping this other country do better, make more money, but my community at home are still really suffering. So I made the decision to return to Canada on July 1st, 2019, to just contribute the skills and experience that I had to empower um, Indigenous inclusion in the energy industry. So kind of outside of the Canadian borders, my work was not Indigenous focused, I guess, except for the social enterprise in Ecuador. But since coming home, that's how I present myself. That's you know, the, the PhD that I'm taking at the U of A, that's the work that I do during the day. It's the dreams that I have at night. It's, it's, you know, it's my entire life. So, yeah. So at the moment I'm working with, well, since I returned, I've been working with a number of first nation and indigenous businesses. I advise the federal government in terms of international trade, which is a big goal. And, and I think it's very important to me. I'm working with industry to help them understand, you know, the different ways to include Indigenous people and just trying to add an influence where I can to, to make things go a little bit better here because there's a ton of work to be done. And um, at times it was really, really disenchanting. I don't, that's not the right word, but it, it was really frustrating. And I've only been home for two and a half years. So I respect. I have the utmost respect for people like Jessica who have been doing it a lot longer than I have. There is such a need for bridges, people who can walk in multiple worlds, who can talk the language of ministers, yeah. yet talk the language of chief and counsel and talk with elders and talk with the average public citizen and, and bring everybody together so they can see themselves in the calls to action. But I agree with you, there is still a large gap and there's still a lot of conversations that are frustrating. There's a lot of repetition. I guess I just want to hear from you a little bit about the perspective you bring, having worked internationally, having worked, we know you do a lot of work with New Zealand and, and their Indigenous people, and, and they're ahead in different ways than we are for how they support. So just some of your observations in what you have seen coming back here to Canada. I'm really fortunate to have had the opportunity to leave. 
if I didn't leave, I would not be the person I am today. Uh, I would not be the indigenous woman I am today. I would not be the professional I am today. And I just think, I don't even know how I got the opportunity <laughs> to train as a chartered accountant with KPMG in London, but I managed to do it. And that was just, it started a series of experiences that I had, which I think are starting to make sense now. I think international experience, working with different cultures, different languages. Like at one point when I first went to Ecuador, I was running a cost optimization project for a global consultancy firm and I didn't speak Spanish, you know, and all the work was in Spanish. My entire team spoke Spanish, but yet I was having to direct something in a language I did not speak or understand. So I think just all of those experiences helped shape me to be more flexible and to learn different strategies to influence and um, work with and understand different, I don't like the term stakeholders in reference to work with Indigenous people, but, you know, the different players or the different people in the room. Coming home, I think one of the things that's proven to be really important is speaking the language of senior leadership in companies and in government. Often what I see at the community level and even just the words, the acronyms being used by industry and government and the understanding of it, maybe at the community level, is so different. So there's a real kind of translation process and bridge building process to meet those two lines of communication. As well, because I've been away so long, I haven't been as conditioned to what's going on. You know, like people, I feel like Indigenous people here, and I can't speak for everybody, but, you know, there's just been things that have happened and I just shake my head and, you know, this is 2022. But I think if I would have stayed in the country my entire life, I would have just accepted it like my peers do. Whereas that kind of time away has allowed me to come back with fresh eyes and to just, you know, kind of grab people and shake them and say, why is this going on? This shouldn't be happening. I hope that's useful for industry and government, but I see that as the kind of the role that I can play in the near future. Let me give you an example of this kind of conditioned behavior. So I know of a um, energy company looking to do some field work kind of preparatory for the permitting process. And they're looking to hire indigenous archaeologists, right? Great idea. There's not too many of them around. So they're looking to hire community people to kind of participate in the process and, you know, inclusion, employment, all great. The first bullet point on the job description is they have to pass an alcohol and drug test. My goodness. The, the senior executive, like they should have the same requirement, right? But this is conditioned. This is expected. And so this is my role is to, to point out this and, you know, the multitude of other things that are going on that people just don't see anymore to say, is this, is this appropriate? Why do you have a different job description for Indigenous participants uh, versus not? You know, like this is the structural racism that we need to get rid of. And this is what my international perspective and my time away has provided me with. You've spoken very much about your own experience and your own expertise. 
But I'm wondering a little bit about more general things that every type of profession within the the settler and newcomer community can use if they feel compelled, as, as many of us do, to be allies with Indigenous people. What are maybe some of the strategies or, or bullet points that, uh, that, that pop into your mind that are kind of generally applicable to all kinds of people? Yeah, so I think the first kind of step would be to listen. It's really difficult. And I like for me on a personal standpoint, it's really difficult for me to listen without a bias or without kind of preempting things. But I think the first step for everybody, Indigenous and non, is to listen. And to listen when you're in a, a good place with a, a good heart, a good mind, because that's when you know these issues are going to land and you'll really gain a perspective. It's also something that I've seen time and time again, industry doesn't do and you know government doesn't do very well as listening so I think we all need to just listen to each other. I think the second and what I've seen with with some kind of settler allies is a real appreciation but it's a fine line where appreciation can turn into appropriation and we see this with companies taking on indigenous names and perhaps not have followed the proper protocol or they're attempting to monetize Indigenous names, this can't happen. And the intentions behind it may have been good. And the kind of understanding may not have been quite there. But the cultural appreciation and appropriation is what I see is the next big challenge for Indigenous people in Canada. And you see it in New Zealand with Maori, right? There was uh, Air New Zealand, they were attempting to trademark the phrase kiora, which is a uh, you know, Maori greeting. And so for a government-owned airline to trademark an Indigenous word is wrong on so many levels, caused a huge kind of backlash. And I just, I see, since I returned home, I see some of this kind of happening. So I think that that's something that everybody needs to be aware of. The third is, you know, educate yourself. There's so many ways to educate yourself. There are tons of books. There's podcasts like this. There's the kind of the learning that you can do by yourself, sitting in your armchair at home. But then there's also getting out into community and speaking with people and going to powwows and going to events where you get to experience it firsthand as opposed to being a, a scholar. I think that's really important and it's especially important, I think, in the Indigenous context because we're the reason why we exist and I think the value, one of the values that is most important to us, broadly speaking, you know, for Indigenous people across the world is relations, you know, kinship, community. And it's really hard to have an understanding of that if you're just reading about it or listening on a podcast. So I would encourage everybody to be a better ally, just go and participate in community and build those connections because that's what's going to change what we have going on right now. This space of allyship, um, because I think around this a lot because um, within Canada, 5% of the population is Indigenous. So obviously we need 95% of the population to stand with us, to amplify our voices, to make space for us to really understand the oppressive history and the truth and 
take responsibility and accountability and all of that, the government's not going to wake up one day and say, oh, I'm just going to change everything and change all the oppressiveness there. It needs the voice of the people needs to come from grassroots and industry plays a huge role in that industry can help move and sway this country. When I think about allyship, though, um, in what you were saying there, sometimes I do struggle with this idea because I've sat in so many rooms and I know you have two railing where you sit and you hear people who are in positions where they've experienced a lot of privilege and they'll say, oh man, we got to do something for those indigenous people. We got to, we got to save them and we got to do this, um, all these things without really the grounding in truly understanding. Like it it feels so very superficial. And I guess what I want to talk to you is a little bit about that because I know our listeners are all over the place in their journey in truth and reconciliation and their understanding. How do you feel reconciliation is happening as an Indigenous person? Because I know we've had other guests comment around like in um, reconciliation is a feeling inside of them. You can tell when somebody's being authentic versus when somebody is part of the chatter, you know, it's the buzzword or doing it to promote their company or, or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's a big question. <laughs> I think, um, first of all, and I don't think this has been spoken about enough, Indigenous business is big business, right? With a $100 billion economy, I'm very... I don't know, critical that that $100 billion will actually go back to community or go back to Indigenous people. I think $95 billion of that are going to go to non-Indigenous companies. So I think returning to Canada, having that time and space to disconnect, coming back and seeing this uptake of reconciliation and inclusion, I think there is sometimes an economic motive for that, for some companies, some people. I think that's fine. We live in a capitalist society. However, for me, reconciliation goes a lot deeper than that, right? How do I feel about reconciliation? I think it depends on the day. So like, to be honest, I don't like the word. I think the word has been overused. And I think that a lot of people don't even know what the word means for themselves. You know, sometimes I question what it means, but I think... I am hopeful. And the last couple of years, especially the last year and a half, I would say, I've seen some really good things coming from good places. So that has, that has kept me here. I nearly pulled the ripcord coming home. I twice, I almost left. The first was right before COVID. I had applied for a working visa for New Zealand. I had gone through like thousand dollars worth of medical exams and then COVID hit and New Zealand shut down their borders. So I almost left once. And then the second time was I had an opportunity to return to London Stock Exchange for a in a director role. And you know, I almost did it, but there was just something keeping me here. And I think it was that hope that things are getting better and that if we all do our part, you know, it's not going to change overnight. It's probably not going to change in my generation. But, you know, we're on the path and we're making progress. And it takes individuals, it takes companies, it takes government. It takes global pressures as well. It needs outside pressure from Canada to make these things happen. But I'm confident that it will. I just, um, 
I really struggle sometimes to not get disheartened when you see these really monstrous things happen. But I think that's where connection to community and relationships with other people really help. That is very true. And on the podcast, um, I think, and not to speak for you, George, but I think we don't quite agree with the word reconciliation either, which is why we call it conciliation, reciprocity. I really like that one as well. That makes sense to me because it's a two-way relationship going forward for an endless amount of time. But definitely it's something that we really want listeners to think about is their role in calls to action and that it's not a task. It's not a thing. It's a shift. It's a shift in attitude. It's a shift in who you are. It's a shift in everything. And it's not something that's just a checklist that sometimes it feels like uh, when people are talking about it or you hear it on political platforms or you hear it in company strategy plans. It's more than just that. It is such a personal thing. And it is such uh, you need to be vulnerable. You need to be open. Like it is such a emotive thing. And I just um, so I've been asked to to join the Indigenous Advisory Committee for Indigenous Advisory Council for TC Energy. And one of the first things I told the senior leadership is this is an emotive subject. This isn't about procurement targets. This isn't about you know how to to better governance or you know, get projects past the the finish line. This is about being vulnerable and being open and being honest with yourself and then with the others who are trying to help you in this journey. So, um, yeah, you know, I think it's Indigenous kind of aside, I can think of very few times in my life where, you know, I've allowed myself to go that deep. So, you know, it's tough to expect everybody else to be on the same level, but I think as a collective, we can do it. We have to do it. There's no other option, in my opinion. We, in the business world, are so attuned to the idea that that there is an end that we've already envisioned and that there is a path to get there and that part of that path will include Indigenous people. Not realizing that the Indigenous people have to be building the path and charting what's going on, too. It's got to be this mutual thing. Other thing that I think is 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 really interesting about this too. I mean, there's the vulnerability, there's the the potential for corporate gain by making uh, conciliation part of their their framework, but there's also the deeply rich personal experience of reconciliation or conciliation, whatever you call it in this country. It's better for our country and it's better for our people individually, our peoples individually. We all gain from the richness we can learn from others. And these rich cultures are there for us to experience and explore and make part of our own psyche without appropriating, but truly appreciating, truly allowing to influence us and be part of our own journeys. And I think instead of that being a the, the, the monolithic idea that, oh, we need to put that aside because this is the way we are in Canada, you know, the one pure Canadian kind of an argument instead of this this wonderful mosaic it's such a richer experience for all of us if we go in with open hearts and open minds to truly embrace without trying to control the agenda of indigenous peoples in canada but embrace the cultures and the viewpoints the worldviews that are represented within indigenous cultures and peoples
Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, a podcast of open and respectful conversation. I'm George Lee, my co-host is Jessica Vandenberg, and our guest is Raylene Whitford. Towards um, reconciliation, conciliation, reciprocity, whatever the right word is that fits, is the the importance of healing. I know as an Indigenous person, there are likely experiences that you've had that weren't always the best. From your own personal experiences of healing and your journey with discovering identity and having these conversations with your families and your friends and becoming who you are, uh, maybe touch a little bit upon what has helped you to heal along the way. You know, I thought you were going to ask me to share some bad experiences. And to be honest, part of the healing is kind of reliving those and to kind of of make peace with them. But I am so grateful to have had numerous experiences um, that have helped my path for personal healing. One was just last week. So I um, run a program called Indigex, which was a passion project for me during the pandemic and it basically connects indigenous professionals in Canada and New Zealand. It's a platform for exchanges and just really wonderful things come out of it, but we are running our third exchange. So last week we had a a weekly meeting and after the meeting, um, one of our alumni, Mr. John Snow, who's a very prominent, spiritual, amazing intellectual person stayed on the call. So there was a little group of us. And I said, Hey, John, I have this, I was given this TP and the way that I was given it was, it was non-traditional, but I ended up with this TP and I, I love it, but I know the painting on it are stony or they, I think they're stony. Would you help me kind of interpret the painting on this, on, on my TP? The story behind the TP was when I came home from the Middle East and living, you know, on the 50th floor of this five-star hotel for a year and a half. Um, I just really wanted to live on the land. I just wanted to smell grass and be away from things that were man-made. So a family member gave me this, this teepee and I lived in it for two months here at Buck Lake. And it was a beautiful experience and it was really incredibly healing. So John, you know, I put a picture of the teepee up on Zoom because that's how we meet these days. And, um, you know, it was a really lovely little group of Maori and Indigenous people in Canada. And he read all of the designs on it. And so he said, like, around the bottom of the teepee, there's rolling hills and there's white circles, which signify the medicine, sage that grows in the hills. There's a horse, which is a spiritual animal in stony culture. And there's moose tracks around the top of it. I have so many moose and I just, my heart jumps when I see moose out here. So that was really special for me. The top is blue and there's kind of a white zigzag, which um, signifies the mountains and then seven circles in a circle. And um, that was the seven brothers or sisters, depending on the story. And so, you know, as he was kind of sharing this with me, his interpretation, because when I was given the TP, I wasn't given the stories. I was so incredibly grateful and it just reflected on my experiences when I lived in the TP two years ago 
and it made sense, right? It all made sense. So I think that experience was in part, you know, being connected and being in good space with others and sharing. I also think there is an element of the creator there, right? To say, look, you know, this is a gift. This is, you know, an experience that I've given you to remind that you're safe and protected. So yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And he kind of told me what I needed to do to express the gratitude and and I'll do that. But yeah, it's just these things, these really lovely gifts that make the day-to-day grind with the spreadsheets and these ridiculous meetings sometimes and the banging of the fist and, you know, sometimes being the, playing the part of the hysterical indigenous woman at the board table that makes it all worthwhile because there's, there's real heart and real meaning behind all of this. And this is the path that I've been given. So, you know, I have to do to do my best to walk the path in a good way. So good. And I know a lot of that resonates with me as well, because I think through the life and the experiences that I have too, which weren't all great by any means. And I think about, because I, I have conversations with a lot of people, they're like, how do you, how have you become who you are? Like, and how do you walk in a good way? Often people ask me that because I talk about walking in a good way. And I think a lot about the teachings that the elders give and knowledge keepers give and that the strength that I've seen in so many people, uh, especially having survived residential schools or 60s scoop or intergenerational trauma and all these things. And I'm in such admiration that they just embody still peace and healing and they're happy and they laugh and they connect and they understand um, all these little things that are being taught to us that if we're just still and quiet, we hear. And this idea of all my relations is such a big piece of that. When I talk to people about uh, Eurocentric and Indigenous worldview differences, the all my relations, the kinship goes beyond that of people to people and often the Eurocentric ends at people to people. But it goes to our animals and our plants and the land and the water spirit and the planets and the moons and the universe and all that stuff, right? So it goes to this whole other area of support that in a Eurocentric way, you're not accessing or tapping into. And it makes you feel alive and it makes you feel humbled and it makes you feel just loved and respected. And it gives you the courage to keep walking in a good way because you're never really alone. You're never really at a place where you don't have this support system around you. And then if you build that whole kinship interconnected concept into workplaces, even simple things like the magic of a, a circle. And Rayleigh, you and I sit in many circles together. Like there's power in this, right? There's healing in this. Just being in circle with just anybody, <laughs> anybody, no matter who they are. And there's so much of these teachings that I find can help, can just help so many people if, if they can really, really um, tap into some of those pieces. Yeah. And I think you mentioned a really important part of healing for me. And I think an important part of the journey in truth and reconciliation, and that is the non-human spirits or the non-humans that surround us. I'm so happy to be doing this podcast from my, my home in Buck Lake, because this is a very special place for me. During the pandemic, I was building a cabin. So I was kind of half living in a half done structure. And, you know, I was really lonely. I had just returned to Canada. I didn't really have too many friends. <laughs> I was working remotely. 
and I was living in the forest. But over the time, you know, the trees became my friends. And I know that might sound, well, I don't think that would sound too strange to anybody listening to this podcast. But, um, you know, the, the trees, they have their own personality. They stand together. They lean certain ways. It's You really get to know non-human beings on an intimate level without the, the busy kind of cityscape which I now have when I spend my time in Vancouver. But I think that that connection is really important as well. So to kind of go back to what we discussed earlier, I think it's important for settler allies to spend time, you know, in community with, with other Indigenous people and other allies. I think it's also so important to spend time in the land. And I'm sorry, Alberta, but that doesn't mean, you know, spending time on the land on your skidoo or, you know, like on your four-wheeler or whatever they're called. Um, it's walking and it's noticing and it's learning about all of these wonderful gifts that are, are here and seeing them. You know, that's a really important part because I truly believe that if all of the energy executives in, let's start in Canada, but let's start in Alberta. Okay. If all the energy executives, senior leadership teams in Alberta were mandated to spend time on the land away from their cell phones, their laptops, you know, to actually be energy industry would be completely different, right? Because you would see, you would have that understanding, you would have that knowledge, that education that is all around us, but we can't see from a skyscraper in Calgary. Yeah, that is such an important thing to acknowledge and to practice. It's um, it's something that I've learned more about since returning home, and I'm really grateful for. That's that's fascinating to me because one of the things that that really makes me think of is that this is really a joining point for so many of us in Canada. I think we are brought up with this kind of uh, instinctive love, even if we're living in the city. We have this; it's part of our national identity. Is the breadth of our country, the diversity we have in our landscape. And the idea that there, and an Indigenous worldview builds upon that, I think that's a really good ent- entry point for settler people because we all, I think we all try to attach ourselves to that cultural, iconic thing Canada is. And the, the outdoors and the wilderness are so much a part of, of who we are. Just the thing, um, George, about these conversations they're not different. Like people think that, um, you know, you walk the Eurocentric way or you walk the Indigenous way and they're different. They're not. People know these things at the heart and spirit of who they are. They just haven't been taught how to listen or to speak that language, right? Because when I talk to people around being in nature and, you know, the love of the mountains and camping and um, being out on the land, people who have do that as part of their lives, they understand that. It just hasn't been used in the same language that the elders and knowledge keepers use. And, but in their heart and spirit, if they're still, they understand that. And you know it at a spiritual level, however you, you call that in whatever terminology that you use. I'm also going to be hypercritical, though, again. Um, so I do not think, and you know, I have friends and, and family who do this. I don't think hauling your massive fifth wheel out to crown land and having, you know, your kind of two lazy board chairs and the late, the satellite TV and maybe a campfire in the middle of the circle of RVs. I don't think that that is being out on the land. Being out on the land is where it's quiet. 
and you're actually with nature. And that doesn't mean that you need to go wild camping by yourself, but spending that time getting to know. And one of the interesting things that I experienced when I lived in the UK, some people, they think of UK, they think London, they think, you know, that there's very little wild space or crown land, what we have as crown land in the UK anyways. But I think British people, at least the ones that I got to know for the eight years that I lived there, they're more connected to the land, I think, than North Americans are. You know, I would go with friends and pick wild brambles in the countryside. We go slow picking. We would harvest mushrooms, you know, like you would kind of, you would be more in sync with nature. And I don't know like where that came from or why they are more connected with the nature and the land than some people here are, but we all need to do that regardless of what country we live in and what systems of oppression we live under. It's a really good thing to do, even just for like your heart and your spirit. Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, a podcast dedicated to breaking down barriers, undermining stereotypes, and fighting racism. I'm Jessica Vandenberg, my co-host is George Lee, and our guest is Raylene McFerd. Once you tap into, um, you know, this creek teaching of Okoto and this idea of interconnectedness and kinship and the ecosystem between people to people, but also to the natural world and the universe and, and the spirits and creator and things like that, things just happen to you that support you to keep walking in a good way. And even to that line, Raylene, um, do you want to talk about how we met and how we reconnected? I was waiting. <laughs> I was going to stop the podcast at the end and tell this story. And I will tell this story until the end of my days because it was so important for me as an Indigenous person. So I was in high school. My parents were really, they put a lot of pressure on me to do well. And I was a bit of a nerd anyways, but I had in my mind that I wanted to be an engineer. So through a program in high school, They connected me with Jessica when I was 16, which was a long time ago. (laughs) And it was, it was some type of indigenous program. I can't remember, but I got the opportunity to job shadow Jessica for a day when you worked with Syncrude, wasn't it? Yeah. So um, she was an amazing chemical engineer. And I just, I remember distinctly one, Jessica had this aura about her. I just thought, my gosh. She's like so smart and she's so beautiful and she's, she's so successful. I had never seen an indigenous professional person in my life, in my entire life. And I was just, you know, that was a turning point for me because I realized that I could do this too. You know, I've seen, I'm seeing somebody else do it. So, you know, maybe there's hope for me to do this as well. So yeah, it was, uh, you know, if I didn't have that experience, I don't know where I would be today. I'm very grateful, Jessica. I'm sorry. I was probably a really awkward, <laughs> weird 16-year-old, but anyways. So I went into university. I failed out of the faculty of engineering because I just didn't. I still don't think mechanically. 
Um, and that was a, the first big failure in my life, but you get back up. I went into the faculty of business and then ended up leaving the country and just never looked behind me. You know, I brought my suitcase with me to my final exam. I didn't even walk the stage. And I went off on this career and I came back to Canada to speak at a conference. And this was in 2019. This was February, 2019. I saw Jessica and you still look the same. You still had the aura about you. You're still beautiful, stunning person, incredibly smart. And I just, I was so pleased to have reconnected with you. And I'm so grateful to call you, you know, really good friend of mine. And I think we are both walking this path of rediscovering our identity or forming our identity as Indigenous women in the energy sector in Alberta, in Canada. But um, yeah, it's that kind of solidarity, seeing it being done before, and the opportunity to kind of lean on somebody when things get tough that has kept me here, you know, because what's the alternative? It could be living in New Zealand or... (laughs) The creator sends you what you need when you need it, right? And for me as well, meeting you is is just as inspiring. It heartens my my spirit and, and it gives me hope, right? And at the end of the day, what we need to make reconciliation, conciliation, reciprocity happen is hope. Um, and we need a place where uh, we can see and support each other as Indigenous people, but we need the hope to be inspired within everyone else in this country so that they understand that, yes, we're resilient. Um, yes, we have been through a lot. And yes, we need your help. <laughs> and yes, you got to walk with us. And that means you got to learn the truth and you got to walk the walk and you got to, you know, do do the tough stuff. And we've been doing it all along, but it's time for everyone else to help shoulder some of that for us too. But I'm so grateful that we were meant to cross paths again and again and again and be able to hold each other up. And for that, I'm very grateful. Really? And I'm just wondering, so you came back at a pivotal time in, uh, so many different ways. Not only did you come back just before the beginning of COVID and uh, which ended up really kind of triggering you to stay in a sense, because you couldn't fulfill this idea of going to New Zealand, but also the recovery of the remains in residential school sites in Canada. I hate to even say it as a number because it's a whole bunch of individuals. And I'm going to say a round number and generalize about it as if it's something you can generalize about. But we're up around 10,000 officially, and we suspect there are so many more. You talked about the conditioning, and some of these things break through our conditioning in our country, and I think this is one of them, where if we were to stand by the idea that, oh, residential schools aren't as bad as what people say, it was probably good for them in some ways, and then there's all these this counter-narrative, and this has just really brought it back to reality of what, how, how inhumane so many of these schools and so many of the of the people running these schools were. So I'm just wondering if you could just speak to what it means to you and, and your country and, and your Indigenous past when you've had to absorb these stories of the last few years. I think, first of all, when I was in my early um, years in university, my cousin, Wanda Whitford, was a counselor at a Miskwichi Academy. So that was when I started to go to sweats with her. 
there was one sweat lodge that we would go to and we'd go with the children from the school. And she would always say, make sure that when you come into the ceremony, you have a good heart, good mind. You know, nobody can be under the influence of anything. Um, just be really kind of careful because this is a residential school and, you know, a lot of children have passed here and their spirits may, you know, still be here. So that was a long time ago. And, you know, to come home and to have these kind of findings confirmed by Western science, it's painful because, you know, I, I feel like as Indigenous people, we've always known. It's also, I don't know, it's, it's really crazy for me to have to answer phone calls and texts from my friends from abroad saying, what the hell is going on? How can these bodies be found in Canada? This is the country that, you know, I have one of my best friends. He's Venezuelan. He lives in Ecuador. He wants, he wanted to come to Canada. He was very desperate in getting a visa to have a better life here. But then you look at things like this happening and what the government is doing and, you know, the various stakeholders at play, how they're dealing with it. And um, yeah, it's completely kind of changed his view that this could go on. But inside of the country's borders, for some reason, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people have been conditioned to this when it is wholly unacceptable. So um, the last thing I'd say is, you know, when the findings at Tecumlips or when the, the mass grave at Tecumlips was confirmed, there was a lot of shouldering the settler grief that Indigenous people had to do and still have to do. You know, I had various settler allies, people who I really admire in government call me crying on the phone you know, saying, how could this happen? How could this happen? And at that point, when I took the call, it hadn't really hit me, but having to comfort them and console them, you know, when, you know, none of us had done it ourselves, but dealing, helping non-Indigenous people deal with their grief was really difficult for me because I was having to deal with it myself. And um, I remember, I think the, the news was released on a Thursday. Uh, the Monday, I had a, a call with uh, First Nation on the well, on the West Coast, and you know, we just started the call, and everybody started crying. And I was with all men on the call, and they were saying, like, you know, my kids, they didn't want to go to school. They don't feel safe at school. You know, like how how do we deal with this as a collective, and how do we pressure the powers that be to deal with this and to make reparations and to acknowledge, you know, the depth of pain that it's caused. So, you know, numbers aside, I think people, broadly speaking, there's a safety in numbers because people can, they understand it. We've been trained in, in quantifying things, but there comes a point where the number becomes useless and you become immune to the number. And maybe that's to help an individual deal with, you know, acknowledging what happened and the pain that is associated with it. Or maybe that's a lack of interest. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's been really difficult for me. You know, I struggle with it at times, but you have to take solace in, in community and, you know, ceremony. A story always means, seems to mean more to us when it's one or two or a few people. And when it gets to numbers that we really don't even, we can't even conceive of in our own 
community. I don't know 10,000 people in Edmonton. When they talk about empathy and altru- altruism, that's really used in, in order to get people to really understand and focus. And there are millions of people on the, on the African continent dying unthinkable deaths all the time, yet one child stuck in a well somewhere else will get more of our attention than those problems with the big numbers. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but it does seem to be a psychological glitch that we have as human beings. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, George. I think even, and I'm not sure when this podcast is going to air, but with all that's going on in Ukraine and kind of, it's it's absolutely surreal seeing the, the war reporters um, on the ground in Kyiv and you know, I said to my partner the other night, I was expecting her to be wearing hijab, right? We've somehow come conditioned to, okay, there's war in the Middle East. That's okay. But when it's in a country that is perceived as white, it's more of an issue. Like it's it's an issue in both circumstances. So, you know, sometimes having that perspective is helpful, but it takes the pressure off of, you know, this lack of reaction that we're seeing here in Canada. But we need to rewire. We need to rewire as individuals, as nations, and as a you know, global collective. Otherwise, this is just going to keep happening, right? 100%. And I think that with the recoveries themselves, I am grateful that we are able to put those bodies to rest and for their sacrifice to come at this time to wake up the country. And part of when I give a lot of awareness talks that people struggle with is that in their mind, it's in the past, it's in the past, it's in the past, but it's in the present, right? And this is what the reality of these recoveries have done is it has put it in the present. And I see a lot of people struggle with that, but they need to know that this is happening right now. (laughs) There's murdered and missing Indigenous women happening right now. There's places that I know I can't walk um, because I don't feel safe. Um, We see it in the legal system. We see it in the education system, in the government systems, in the funding and how it works in the reserve system, the chief and council system, how governance interacts with each other. We see it all over the place, but it needs the reality check that it's in the present and there is urgency to it. There is lack of water and clean water and basic human rights happening right now. There are children suffering right now. And that's what this whole recovery is really, really doing for this country, is grounding it in the now, and that this will keep happening and happening and happening and happening until um, everyone takes up the calls to action and sees themselves having a responsibility to do anything. Okay, maybe I'll just do the wrap. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to what we've talked about or something we haven't touched on? I don't think so. Yeah, I think this is a a conversation that is wider than just a simple episode on a podcast. But I hope that this sparks some reflection, at least on those who listen to it. And if anything, just sitting here on a Sunday at Buck Lake, 
with you both in this circle. It's been a really wonderful experience and healing in itself. So thank you for the opportunity. And um, George, thank you for smiling when Jessica and I are talking and telling our stories and for being such a good supporter. And Jessica, thank you so much for being a role model and somebody who I truly, deeply admire. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, Raylene. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Okay. You're welcome. Thanks so much. We'll see you both thank you. Um, soon. Unsettled Journeys in Truth and Conciliation is a production of Features West Studios on Treaty 6 and Métis Region 4 traditional territory in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Co-hosts are Jessica Vandenberg and me, George Lee. Music written and performed by Kevin John of Cayuca Checklist First Nation on Vancouver Island. Logo conceived and designed by Corrine Riedel and Sandy Brown Van Dam. You can find us pretty well anywhere you download podcasts. We're listed in the major directories and some of the minor ones too. We've also got a Facebook page, so be sure to check that out. Like us, rate us, review us, all that stuff. Until we meet again, take care and be good to each other. And after we meet again, for that matter. Bye for now. <laughs>